a Podcast One production. Jesse Israel is a social entrepreneur, meditation leader and former record label executive known for founding the mass meditation movement, The Big Quiet. Jesse teaches how to stay present to the world while learning kindness towards yourself. Jesse says meditation is the most powerful tool that I've experienced. Having a daily meaningful practice doesn't feel like a band-aid, it's foundational and regenerative. In this heartfelt conversation, Jesse and I discuss the dark days of his mental health, the power of intuition and the importance of stillness. Part of the power of meditation, and I'd say mass meditations, is that it's such a meaningful way to bridge the divide, you know, to bridge across lines of difference. When we can close our eyes and go to that place of silence, that place of quiet, it's an equalizer. We suddenly can feel a oneness. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Jesse Israel has led some of the largest meditations in the world and at the start of 2020, Jesse was invited to go on tour with Oprah Winfrey and lead mass meditations at sold-out arenas throughout the US. In this episode, you will learn the greatest power you have is right inside of you. You just need to be still to harness it. Jesse Israel, take us through your life because you've had such a such an interesting path to where you are now how was school for you um let's see I always I always did well in school and really loved being social Um, I was a popular guy I had a a knack for leadership at a young age and I had a, a tendency to uh, to uh, uh, really upset teachers through what they were they referred to as my my ringleading capabilities. <laughs> so I, if a teacher, if I felt like a teacher wasn't respecting me or my peers, I would rally my fellow students to uh, go against that teacher, and it was sort of like a power by numbers thing. So we could really torment certain teachers in this way. So um, I tortured some teachers <laughs> when I was a young guy. Um, and it put me on behavior probation, something that I was on for several years at my school. I reached a point where if I got in trouble one more time, I'd get expelled. So it, it kind of blocked some of my creative potential. So much of, of who I am and and what I, and what I give myself to has to do with leadership. And I think some of that got blocked. I was, I was using it in controversial ways. So I was placed on behavior probation. If I got in trouble once I, I, you know, I get expelled. So I had to really hold back a lot of what I, how I wanted to express myself with leadership. And it took me uh, several years later to start to explore other ways to, to use that leadership and maybe to use it for more good. But in my, my time in school, it was, it was a, a really fun blend of like learning how to build community and really learning a lot about leadership and also learning about doing things differently, following rules, not following rules. It was an important period for me. How old were you when you went on probation? Uh, I was in the eighth grade, so I think I was 14. Yeah. And 
How did that make you feel? It was really frustrating. I knew that I was upsetting teachers. And my thing was, I wasn't, I, I wasn't a bully. I didn't mess with other kids. I was well liked. It was really just when I felt like there was some form of injustice to myself or the students, that's when I'd really step up. I knew that it wasn't necessarily my place. Um, and I think the thing that, that got me most was how upset my parents were because mm-hmm. whenever I get in trouble, it would really upset my parents. So I knew that, I think there was some self-acceptance around the fact that there were things that I could work on and change, but it was also really tough for me, especially as a 14 year old, it was like just gone through puberty and was figuring out all these things about my life and about my, my creative expression, that it was tough to feel so confined through a set of rules. And also I was, uh, I had to go to therapy. It wasn't like a, there wasn't a question about it. I had to go to therapy because my behavior, behavioral issues. And I really didn't like that at that mm-hmm. stage in my life. This, you know, as an adult, I wound up loving therapy, but as a 14 year old, it felt really forced on me. So it was a really tough period for me to get through. It's a funny thing, rules in life, isn't it? You know, <laughs> even as an adult, there are times, and I have to deal with it now, where there are certain rules that I have to abide by. And I think, but they just, this doesn't make sense. And I think when you have a greater understanding of yourself, and it's hard when you're at school because you're young. So, you know, I see it with my own kids when they tell me about something and I think that's so unfair. And my son will say, but if I talk back, then I'll get in trouble. And I think, yeah, you're right. That That's what happened then. But even as an adult, when you know something, something is not quite the way that it should be, but you're in an environment, may it be a work environment or something, and they're the confines that you have to work to. It's, I think there's something in it when the soul yearns and knows that this isn't, this isn't how it should be. Yeah, I can, I can very much relate to that. And I think that that's true for a lot of people right now. Mm. I think for, for a lot of people, at least here in the US, a lot of people feel like rules that were put in place around being a human aren't rules that everyone agreed to. Yeah. And, and I see this right now with the election and, and how challenged that system is. And I'd say archaic um, people feel like, man, these rules need to be rewritten, but how do you rewrite rules when they've been the same rules that have been in place for hundreds of years? Yeah. <laughs> that actually feels like a very, a very modern issue right now. It is. And I think you get to that point where you're like, look at the Nelson Mandela's of the world, the people that, you know, brought such, such change, they, they, they questioned the rules. They knew that things should be a different way. So it's, a, it's just a fascinating concept because mm. we all have the power to be able to do that. It's true. And I think what we're seeing is that we're, we're moving into a day and age where more people can speak up about, about working towards creating that change. Mm. Now, how, how we can go about actually creating the change versus, versus just speaking up, I think there's, there's kind of a big difference between the two. But yeah, I think people are saying, hey, we need innovation in lots of different ways right now in our world. You developed anxiety when you were young. How, how do you think that came about? Why did that come about? And how did that affect you? Exactly where it came from. It really, I started to notice it when I went at a young age, but it, it, was, it was minimal. It was, you know, feeling anxious before a sports, you know, a sports game or something like that stuff that I I think made sense stuff that was attached to, you know, being perceived by people and wanting to do a good job and wanting to be seen as 
seen a certain way. Um, but when it got really bad for me was when I was in my early twenties, then it was not, it wasn't just, I'd have a little anxiety here and there before something performance related, but I was starting to have panic attacks. And you know, that's, 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 that's the body's nervous system, not being able to handle mm. the stress and the anxiety that it's taking on. So it starts to move into this red zone. It's almost like a breakdown state and panic attacks for any listeners who have had those experiences are really, really uncomfortable, really mm. challenging. It feels like, like the world's going to end. It's a really scary feeling. And I think that that started happening in my life. I think that was a blend of, I, I think it was environmental stuff. You know, I think, I think part of it was not feeling like I had a community or a group of people where I could really talk about what was honestly going on in my life and feeling you know, supported and seen in that way. A big part of it was not knowing how to take care of myself or how to have the tools like meditation, mm. which would be a really critical piece for me, but not having an, an understanding of what those tools would be to take care of myself. I think a big part of it also was, again, this is in my early 20s, as I was building a business as a young guy, I was modeling how to build that business off of how I'd seen other men build businesses. And it was, you just work as hard as possible and your top goal is growth and revenue and power and success, uh, success being defined by those things actually. And that wasn't a sustainable way for me to operate. And it really is a sustainable way for anyone, a small percentage of people maybe. So I just, I just had sort of an outdated uh, software in place for how to show up in the world. And it took me some time to understand what changes that I could make so I could actually start to feel better and enjoy my life. You were a record label manager for a while. How did you get into that? And was that during the time that you had the anxiety? Yeah, it was, I was 20 years old. I, my roommate at my, at my uh, college dorm and I started managing a band called MGMT, who was also a college band. Um, at the time, they they weren't very well known, but a couple of years later, they wound up becoming a global sensation. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah, so we had this dorm room record label to put out their first album. And when the band took off, our record label took off. So that's why by the time I was, you know, we started the label when I was twenty. By the time I was twenty three, I was already burnt out. But we were going all in on this business. And it was, it was in, in many ways, really fun. We were signing bands. We had a joint venture with a major label. So we had funding to sign talent that we loved. And we were learning a lot about the industry and really just making sense of how to build our careers mm. by trying different things. Um, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a great journey. And it really was something that just unfolded through a series of kind of coincidences. And, uh, and we just went for it. And then... Obviously, you didn't do that forever. You got out of that. Why did you decide to give it up? Because it sounds quite glamorous. It was a really fun journey. And it was, there was, it was glamorous and it was sexy. You know, when people, you know, you'd be at a dinner party, people are like, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, I run a record label. Yeah. Felt nice. <laughs> Going backstage, <laughs> partying. Yeah. All that good stuff. And, when I was in my late 20s, we had this beautiful office space in Soho and in downtown New York, had great business partners. We were working with great bands. Um, there was a lot there that would point to continue to do this thing. It was also the only, only work I had really done I mean, since I was 20. So it was really like it was my baby. It's what I'd known. And I really identified a lot with it. Mm. 
Mm. Um, but there was something in me that I started to feel in my late twenties, which was that this, that, that my heart was no longer in it and that the journey and sort of growth period that I experienced had maxed out and that it was time for the next thing. But it was a very scary and uncomfortable feeling mm. to have because it didn't really make sense. I remember making like a pros and cons list. And on the pros list, it was all the things we just talked about. It was all the, you know, the, the glamorous elements and the hard work and nine years of building this thing and all this stuff. And on the cons list, I only had one thing and it was in my heart wasn't in it. I just wasn't feeling it on my, in my gut. And my gut was saying it was, wasn't there anymore. It's time to move on. So it was a, one of those challenging moments that I think we're all faced with in life where we're faced with, do we follow the gut or do we follow all of the logic? Yes. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's written out in front of us. And it's that intuitive feeling that I've grown to really be my decision maker. Mm. Right. We, f- we refer to it as charm, uh, fine level of feeling, nature's intelligence, you know, speaking through our body. And part of why I love meditation so much, because I find that it, it refines the ability to hear that charm or that intuition or that gut and yes. then to act on it. So it was scary to be able to do that, but it felt so clear at an intuitive level that I went for it. And I had a few months of savings where I was financially able to, I know not everyone's able to do something like that, but I was, so I went for it. I, just, I took that leap. What made you turn to meditation? How did you get into it? I got into meditation several years before I left my label. I got into meditation when I was having those panic attacks. Mm. I started to go to a therapist again. When I was 23, I started, maybe 23, 24, I started going back to therapy. I was prescribed an SSRI medication called Lexapro. So anti-anxiety, anti-depression medication. And then I also, not too long after that, started meditating. I learned Vedic meditation with a teacher named White Watkins. I found all three of those things to be very helpful for me. But meditation was the one that really clicked most. And I found that as I continue to practice on a daily basis, that there was a tremendous amount of relief that I was experiencing and, mm. and a lot was changing for me. So I would be practicing while I was continuing to run my label. I'd be at those music festivals, you know, backstage and I'd be meditating and, and, and would started to form a little group of other people that I'd meditate with in the music biz, other label executives, other managers, sometimes other musicians. And we'd share these really meaningful moments of quiet while there was so much noise around us and chaos and people partying and just, you know, anyone that's been to a music festival can be really mm. fun and intense. Um, so it was really cool to share quiet in that way. And what I started to realize through these, through these little moments at music festivals where I, was, where I was meditating with other people in the biz was that other people would speak up and communicate that they were going through similar challenges. And I started to realize I wasn't the only person going through this stuff. Mm. And uh, there was something incredibly healing and validating to like, oh, wow, I'm not the only person in the music biz who's dealt with anxiety or panic attacks or has felt overwhelmed or, you know, kind of questioned their role in this whole thing. It was really, it was, it was a really cool feeling. And that's what initially started to seed this idea for me, which was, hmm, maybe there are ways for me to start to use those leadership skills and, and that love that I had for rallying people and gathering people like we spoke about when I was a kid. Um, and apply it to something else, but apply it to something that was really specific to my work. 
And um, I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I did wind up leaving the music biz to give myself to more of that community building, sharing tools that could help people grow and connect. And the way that I, the way that I, I, I first started to experiment with this after I left my label was by gathering people to meditate in my buddy's apartment. And that's when the work that I do now is really born. What do you notice when you're in that silent state? What are some of the most profound things that have, have come to you? Well, I would say that for me, so much of the value in, 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 in being in that silent space mm. comes from what happens once I open my eyes and go back into my life or into my eyes open life. When I close my eyes and practice meditation, I think this is true for anyone who meditates in any type of meditation. When I practice my eyes, when I close my eyes and practice meditation, my experiences are always different. Mm. You know, sometimes my, my, my mind is wandering and it's thinking about work and to-do lists or problem solving. Sometimes I have very deep meditations and I feel like I disappear or I have an, a sensation that feels like I'm in a deep, deep sleep. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, challenging emotional stuff will come up and I'll feel a heightened sense of challenge emotion, right? So the experience that I have when the eyes are closed, my practice is eyes closed. Well, the, the experiences that I have, my practice is to just let myself have those experiences. I use a very particular technique. I return to that technique. I allow myself to have whatever experience I'm having without judging, without resisting, really just welcoming. It's, it's really a surrendering practice yes. for me. So when the eyes are closed, it can look like lots of different things. But regardless of what happens when my eyes are closed, if it's an uncomfortable meditation or if it's a gratifying meditation, once my eyes are open, I notice continued significant benefit and change. And so that's really what I look to. It's like, how am I feeling after I meditate? How is it affecting my life? And when I first started practicing, what I noticed was that the way that I was, I was uh, responding to the demands of the world and the things that were coming at me, right, were faced with so much information mm. overload today. And the way that I was able to respond to the challenges and everything that came my way started to shift. I noticed that whereas before I was meditating, I was, I was reactive, I would say stressfully reactive or very intensely emotionally reactive. And I just, as I started practicing meditation, I noticed that there was more space. I started to notice that I could be more proactively responsive. Yes. To actually, to actually feel into and, and, and have time to uh, consider how I want to respond mm. to stuff. So things that would once stress me stop stressing me the same way. And when I started to notice, that, once I started to notice that there was less stress that I was experiencing, less anxiety, right, less of those blocks, I, I moved into this next sort of journey in my meditation practice where I started to just get really clear about who I was and what I stood for. Mm -hmm. This is around the time when it started to become clear that it was time to leave my label. And this is something that I think can be really scary and, and uncomfortable about meditation is when we start to practice it for a, for a period of time and we realize that, that we're experiencing less stress and less anxiety and a lot of those benefits that we hear about kick in, well, the next chapter in the meditation journey is, all right, well, now it's time to get really aligned with what you're here on this earth to do. Yes. And that may mean certain careers changing or certain roles at jobs shifting or relationships or friendships changing, realigning. Mm. Um, so it's really allowed me, and this is, it's not like I'm figured it all out. I'm still very much in my journey. 
but it's allowed me to get a lot more clear about who I am, what I stand for, and to be able to discern how I can give myself to what I think the world needs and what Mm. people need right now, which to me is what it's all about. I totally agree. When I started meditation, I felt the same. It was that that phase of not reacting as fast and being having that space between maybe someone saying something or an, an experience has occurred where instead of reacting, you just think about what you're going to say and then you're really measured with how you answer it, which is such a beautiful thing. And as you said, all that stress fades from your life. And then the second phase is I've experienced exactly what you were talking about where I've sat in meditations and just had these unbelievable knowings about my life. And I remember one recently and it just clicked when you were talking where I was thinking about the podcast and my place in the world and I thought to myself, the podcast is not about me. It's about how I can service the greatest good of the world and the people that listen to it who are giving themselves to me to be able to, for me to be able to give them this information. And I, it was as clear as day when I got that and has shifted my life completely and the way that I do everything that I do. It's, it's, I mean, it sounds, it sounds so bizarre to someone who may never have done meditation before, but these moments are so unbelievably special. Yeah, it's cool to hear to hear your reflection around it and to hear that our reflections are aligned. Mm. This is one of, I think, the, the really beautiful benefits of the practice is, yes, we get to have the benefits that we hear a lot about in science and research that we hear about in media today about reducing stress. But as we start to get clear about who we are, we start to naturally move more into a place of service. And that doesn't mean like we leave our companies to start nonprofits yes, or that everybody leaves their job to start a meditation business like I've done or to do a podcast like you've done. But I think we start to really reconnect with, hmm, there's more to this, to this life than uh, me. And that when we're able to think about how we can take care of ourselves and then contribute to the world around us and the people around us, life becomes fulfilling. So fulfilling. Right. And this is something that I think meditation helps us naturally move into and helps us naturally find and flow with. And it's a part of, I would say, wellness that's really important and often lost Mm. because it's really easy to look at the wellness space and to see how I think overly branded and at times trite it can feel. I say that with love, but I mean it. (laughs) Um, It's really easy to feel like it's just about looking better and feeling better and, you know, healthy smoothies and mm. you know, exercise classes. I think all these things are great, but when the sentence, you know, when it ends there, when it's just about those things, we miss the greater point. I would say the point, which is once we're feeling good, once we're really taking care of ourselves and empowering ourselves with all these tools that we're now accessing through wellness, we can then more fully give ourselves to the world and the other people in our lives and, and the people beyond our lives. That's what it's about. So meditation is, I think, is, I think is, a, is a great tool for that. And I think it aligns us with something that we all innately have inside of us. And this is because when we lived in tribes and my teacher, Johnny Pollard, who you've had on the show before, yes. wrote a book called The Golden Sequence, where he talks about this a lot. He looks a lot at the way that we existed in tribes 
up until just about 10,000 years ago, the majority of the, I mean, pretty much everyone on this earth lived in tribes. And when we did, we needed to give to the greater good. We needed to consider more than just ourselves for the tribe to survive. Mm. And if we didn't, we'd get kicked out of the tribe. And if we got kicked out of the tribe, we were done. <laughs> yeah. We really needed each other for survival. And I think today, in a very short period of time, the world's changed so much. It's very easy to live in this world today and not feel like we're of use or to not feel clear about how we can give ourselves to something in a way that feels meaningful. It feels like we're having an, an impact. If that's within our companies, within our family dynamics, mm. with our friends. So uh, the last thing I'll say about it is what I always, what I generally find when I'm in a, when I'm in a tough headspace and I find that I'm suffering about something. And this is particularly true if I'm comparing myself to other people or feeling like I'm behind in my life or in my career mm. is I'll make that shift just like you did when you were in that meditation. And I'll go from, this isn't just about me and how I'm perceived and where I'm at in my life. This is about work that I'm doing to have an impact on help people, people who need this work right now. Once I shift to that place of a contribution mindset instead of that sort of lack and scarcity mm. mindset. It's crazy how that suffering can lift. Oh my God. And the flow that you actually get from that, it's it's an absolutely ripple effect where as soon as I found in my life, I changed my mentality from being one of lack to one of service, where the next minute all this stuff will start flowing into my life right. and it becomes even more magical than it was because Unfortunately, when you are comparing or you're in that suffering mindset, you're blocking yourself from right. what, what is actually available to you. I think that's so spot on. And I'm, I'm reminded of it, exactly what you said regularly, that once I can shift the perspective to, go, to, to look at the situation beyond myself and through the lens of contribution, it's, it's just crazy how stuff starts to magnetize and come my way that otherwise didn't. I really think on sort of a trippier level. Yeah. That, that when we make that shift to, to what, what does the like, what are the great needs of the time around us? How do we give ourselves to those needs that when we connect with that, that nature or the universe or whatever, mm. like the greater power we may believe in starts to support the process yes. and we get rewarded for, for focusing in that way. And I'm constantly reminded of the power in that. It's, it's something that I started doing when I go into my meditations every morning, I, I started saying a poem from a beautiful Sufi poet called Rumi, who's obviously very well known. He's an amazing poet. I say to myself before, it's almost like a prayer, I grow silent, dear soul, you speak. And then I just, I just go into meditation and see what comes. I love that. What's the, what's the practice that you do most mornings? I'll do anything from big manifestation meditations that I've learned where you know there are you go into a kind of void for a while and so you're really centering the mind on nothingness which is not dissimilar to the vedic meditation where you're there is a mantra and you keep going back to the mantra this is that you keep going back to the darkness you keep going back mm. to the void you keep going back to nothing and the the thoughts come i mean i had a terrible meditation this morning but like you like my teacher taught me there's never a bad meditation so even when i'm struggling with the monkey mind and a million things are coming my way. It is what it is. It's better than not doing meditation at all. But then I will probably go into that void kind of silent black space for a half an hour or so. And then it comes into there's music and it's, it's a manifestation 
sort of meditation and I've done one this morning for love. So it's about, you know, centering your life for love and having love surround you. It's really heartfelt and beautiful. So, I mean, I do all different ones, but uh, that's a practice that I did this morning. That sounds awesome. Yeah, love it is. love sharing a little bit about your, your, your personal it's, it's, journey with it. It's so beautiful and it's completely changed my life, absolutely shifted my life unbelievably. So that's why I always love to talk about meditation because I really want people to know the benefits because I think we're all like this. You start meditation and I remember I did this. I started meditation and I thought, oh, this is not for me. You know, right, you, right. you do the 15-minute body scan or whatever you're doing and it's, it just doesn't click. You, it's just not something that you think that you'll be able to do and it's not till you find a meditation that actually suits you or one that you go, wow, this is, I can see myself like this is enjoyable that it then becomes like a drug and it, it's like you wouldn't go a day without it. I, I have barely missed a day in the last five years of meditation. Incredible. Thanks for sharing about your personal meditation journey. It's so cool to hear the passion in your voice when you speak about it. And just to be another advocate and reminder of how powerful the practice can be. You have gone on to do the big quiet, which is obviously mass meditations. Can you tell us a bit about how that idea came about? Yeah, sure. The concept, it actually, the, the, the idea came to me during a meditation. And it was, you know, we started to have these group meditations in my buddy's apartment. Like I mentioned, I left the music industry. I was very much open to what was next for myself. And I started organizing these group meditations, mainly with people I knew from work and from places I was partying in the city. It was people I wasn't used to being sharing quiet with. And it was so valuable to have that space to slow down together. It was actually kind of awkward, like a little vulnerable to get quiet with my active peers. And, and then we would talk, you know, we'd meditate and then we would talk about the real shit that was happening behind the scenes, you know, behind the social media. And it just felt great. Just mm. like I was experiencing when I had those moments at festivals that I mentioned earlier. So every month we would gather groups to have this experience of, you know, shared quiet, check in with each other, do it in an accessible way. And by the fifth or sixth month, we had, you know, hundreds of people showing up to my buddy's loft to, to, to have this experience. So we could, we knew that there was something there that was serving a need for people. So we wound up starting the big quiet as a way to really do it at scale. The first one was a partnership with the City Parks Foundation in New York. So we were able to do it at Summer Stage Central Park, which is an honor. Because mm. when I ran my record label, that was one of the venues I always dreamed of yes. having our bands play at. And here we were hosting the first ever city-backed mass meditation. And um, it was pretty cool to be able to have that experience of tons of people from all different five, for all five boroughs coming in to meditate together. And then we had performances um, musicians uh, putting on great song performances when people open their eyes. We had DJs and great food. It was kind of the two things that I loved. It was it was moments to slow down and connect and meditation, and there was elements of the music industry and festivals, and it was all in one, and it felt good. So over the past five or so years, I've really dedicated myself to building it. That first big quiet led to a series of really awesome invites from different 
institutions in New York inviting us to host similar experiences at their at their venues, Madison Square Garden, uh, under the Blue Wealth Museum and Natural mm-hmm. History, the top of the World Trade Center, you know, gathering thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people online wow. who were tuning in. And it was just really exciting to be able to to gather to meditate and to do it in mass and to mm-hmm. do it in these really spectacular places where you're not used to getting quiet. <laughs> Um, and then having people perform. Tell me about the mass meditation side, because I've done meditation retreats where there's just over a thousand people meditating in one room and oh, the energy is mind-blowing. And there's something to be said about having a lot of people meditating at the same time. Meditating by yourself is phenomenal, but this is next level because their energy and your energy just absolutely like, you know, absolutely is out of control. I actually remember this one experience. I have to tell you when I was doing a meditation at a retreat and I just knew that there was something different about this meditation and there was this heat that was coming off my skin that was Mm. like palpable. And then after the meditation, they got us to lie down. So it's still part of the meditation, but it's like you're lying down and we're all quite crowded. This is pre-COVID. And the person who was in front of me, their feet is at the back of my head, not touching, but close. And we finished the meditation. I just remember thinking, wow, that was phenomenal. And the girl said to me, my feet were on fire from your head. She said, whatever you were doing in that meditation, there was this huge heat that was just coming off you. And it was so powerful running through my body. And I've never forgotten that. And I was actually doing a manifestation meditation at that time and everything I manifested came true. I was thinking about that Mm. the other day. How have you felt that energy from other people in such big gatherings has affected that audience? It's been really interesting to experience it because I'm not familiar with with science that speaks to what happens or why that happens, Mm. although there has been some research on it. I can only speak to what I've felt and what I've seen. And right before the pandemic, the big quiet was on tour with um, Oprah and WW. And we were hosting these mass meditations with, you know, in sold out arenas of 15,000 people. So sometimes many as 17,000 people at a time. And there was, we, we did this thing where it would be a 10, it was a 10 minute guided meditation. And then for 60 seconds, I would ask the audience to just sit in silence Mm. and we would lead them up to this moment with sound bowls and different techniques to help relax them. And then for 60 seconds, it would just be total silence. It's a very long period of time to be with 15,000 people in complete silence. And going into it, I wasn't sure if people were going to even participate in that way. You know, people are fired up to be uh, on, to be at an Oprah event, yes. <laughs> it was like where people get, you know, are people going to be in their boxes making sound and you know not paying attention? What was so interesting was that each at, at each you know it's a ten city that there's a, a ten week tour. Each tour stop, every participant, uh, every person in every arena participated. All it takes is one person to talk, and the whole arena can hear it. Mm. I mean, you can hear each person cough when they cough, but each person participated. And that was really the key piece. It was about participation. It was an opportunity. And this, this continues to be the case. I notice uh, and has always been at our events is when we practice together and we choose to close our eyes and to share in that silence, 
it's no longer a passive thing. We're actually, we're actually giving to a moment, mm. right? We actually have to all be quiet and to create that quiet. All it takes is one person to talk and it changes the experience. Hundred percent. So to feel, just to, to feel like we're actually participating in it. I think that there's a sense of belonging that, that, mm. that occurs when the group's really large, like you've experienced on, on, on the Oprah tour, the energy is so strong that you can actually, you can feel it. You mm. can actually almost hear it. Yes. 15,000 people in silence. It, there's like a sound to everyone's energy. It's really hard to describe. But one thing that Oprah actually pointed out at the last tour stop, Oprah and I had this little segment on each tour. Where we would talk about meditation and the experience. It was really fun. And at the last, at the last tour stop, she noticed that cause she would get in the audience and she would meditate with everyone at each tour stop. She would sit right in the Beautiful. middle of everybody. And what she noticed was that people were getting really emotional in the meditation. So she, you know, she could hear people crying and she could see people crying and you know, there was this emotional release that was occurring. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is really beautiful about meditating in groups, especially mass meditation, uh, the, the way that I like to guide the meditation is to, is to, you know, we, we, we close our eyes, we go into our bodies. I take people through some relaxation and I bring people into their hearts and the mm -hmm. practices feel whatever you're feeling, whatever's coming up for you in your heart, any emotions or sensations, allow yourself to feel those and to be with them and to welcome them and to love them and, and mm -hmm. to not feel like whatever you're feeling is wrong to just be with it. This is a rare practice for us to just give ourselves permission to feel what we're feeling. There's a sense of relief that comes with that. I often noticed because yeah. a lot of times when we're, when we're feeling challenging emotions, we feel like we shouldn't be, or we need to change them or fix them. Mm. And I think that this is a misunderstanding. I think challenging emotions are really important. And when we allow ourselves to feel them, we can grow through them, learn from them, and they melt. Now, when you're with thousands of people who are all given permission to just feel what they're feeling and be themselves, the sense of relief can be really strong. We can feel like we're given permission to be human with other people at the same time. And it can really open up a lot of emotion for people. And I think there's a lot of power in that practice and that experience as well. I often cry in my meditations, exactly what you said, I'll allow my heart to open and maybe something I was bottling up inside and it will come out and it's so beautiful. And I feel a hundred times better after that's happened. Mm. This is a, this is a great learning. And I think an important message when we allow ourselves to, you know, feel it, to heal it. When, mm. when we, when we allow ourselves to feel what's coming up and instead of pushing it away, we embrace it, even though it's really tough. We surrender to it and, and accept and allow what we're feeling. It's like opening a window and letting in fresh air. You know, this is this is how we're able to 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 use it to to move into whatever's next in our lives. So when you when you talk about feeling that challenge in a meditation, but you allow yourself to feel it and then you feel so much better afterwards, mm. this is a great and important message. Because again, I think that what the world around us tells us is when we feel shitty or when we feel uncomfortable that we either need to numb it, we need to escape it, we need to pretend like it's not happening, we have to push it away. Um, this, this doesn't, I think this limits the beauty and power of emotion. What's the most mind-blowing thing you've seen at these mass meditations that you've led? I would say the, the most mind-blowing experience, well, 
doing this with, with, with 17,000 people mm. on the Oprah tour was, was pretty unreal. I'll yeah. say that just like the fact that this thing that started my buddy's apartment with 20 people and, and it was almost five years to the day that we started, we were on this tour. Which is really no time at all. Five years to be from going to your apartment to then being on a stage with Oprah. Is, right. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's true. No, I mean, it's, I would say that that nature, the universe has supported yes. the growth of the big quiet because of, of, of how, because of what it's doing, how it's serving people and helping people. But the, the story I wanted to share was, it's actually not about the Oprah tour. It was, it was only within our first year or two, but we were invited to do a big quiet mass meditation at the Oculus, which was this structure that looks like a phoenix uh, at ground zero. And it, 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 was, it, it, had t- it had taken, I think, 16 years for it to be built since 9-11 happened. And it was right on the site of ground zero. They built up this, this, this beautiful structure. And we were invited to do one of, it may have been the first event or one of the first events uh, at this brand newly opened uh, hub. It's a transportation hub. Mm. Um, and we were so excited. I remember we put the event, uh, we put the tickets on sale for this mass meditation and it sold out really quickly. And there were tickets on Craigslist that were, you know, two, three times the price and people were flying in from different parts of the world to be a part of this moment, um, at a, you know, pretty sacred and trauma filled Mm. land. Um, but it was exciting to see that there were people that were responding so positively to such a positive moment in New York. It was a really, it was like, Oh, this is something that people are excited about. This is great. And it was also a tremendous amount of work to put this event together too. Anyways, uh, 48 hours before the event was set to kick off the mall that operates some of the, the stores in this area, um, messaged us that they had made a mistake and they were, I, I was impressed with how they owned their mistake, but they're like, they made a mistake and the event, the event can't happen. Um, it wasn't for a, a safety issue. It wasn't for a legal issue. It was, it was like a, not worth getting into details, but I just felt this calling, which was like, we can't cancel this moment. Mm-hmm. It feels too important. And there's so much energy behind it. And it actually is a public space. Uh, it's a transportation hub. So people can gather there. <laughs> we had a permit for it. And then the permit was revoked because of an error that they made. Mm. So after doing everything that we could to see if we can make this event happen, uh, it wasn't going to be possible. And they said to us, they said, you know, if you decide to come anyways, the, uh, the port authority, which is like a high security individuals with like machine guns <laughs> will come and they'll wipe everyone out of the space. It's a little nerve wracking, but we decided that we would have this moment regardless. We would do it respectfully. We would do it legally, but we would show up in mass to have this moment. And we would just sit on the floor and all of the elements that we had prepared for it, we would still do, but without chairs, without yeah. the sound system and all the things we had in place. And it was nerve wracking because they realized right before that we were going to do that. So they just filled the space with SWAT team, like literal SWAT team, like men and uh, men and women in camouflage and giant guns. And it was a really nerve wracking moment. And for me as a leader, I was like, is this a bad idea? Am I leading our community 
into something dangerous? Am I doing something dangerous for the city? Is this disrespectful to the land? Right. There's a lot I was trying to make sense of, but we decided to do it anyways. And it was tense. But the second the event started, all of the guys with their guns put their guns down and you could feel them kind of leaning into the experience. Because the way that we decided to open it was by having a cellist just start by playing a beautiful song. And it echoed throughout this entire space in this really magical way. And we wound up doing the meditation. We had a 20-person chorus perform, and they kind of stood in different areas and just sang. All of these commuters who were walking by stopped and sat with us. And by the time the event was, and they let the event happen, by the time the event was done, you had these SWAT team members come over with their weapons, hugging everybody <laughs> and asking us about meditation and sharing their experience with us. And actually the head of security at that, at the Oculus gave us his card and he was like, this is so important here. Thank you. Like, let's do this more. <laughs> so it was, it was just one of these cool moments that reminded me that part of the power of meditation, and I'd say mass meditations is that it's such a meaningful way to, to bridge the divide, you know, to, to, to bridge across lines of difference when we can close our eyes and go to that place of silence, that place of quiet, it's an equalizer. Mm. We suddenly can feel a oneness. And when we, and when we collectively go into the heart in that way, like you talked about with your meditations and we come out of it and we're more in our hearts, we're just that much more likely as we interact with each other to make decisions and to connect Mm. from a place of love. So it was a really extreme example, but it really pointed to, I think the power of community in this way. Yes. There is something about when you're doing those mass meditations. I remember, you know, I'd be next to strangers and when the meditation would finish, we'd just all hug each other. And, you know, these are people who are in their 80s to 17 years old of all races. And it's you, there is this feeling of oneness that is so profound which unfortunately we don't have so much in our everyday life. Right. Yeah. I think that's part of why it resonates with people. This is one thing that's been really interesting since we started the big quiet was when we would market it, when we would promote a mass meditation, we just found that people were called to it, even though they really didn't know what it was. Mm. And it's consistently been the case. And I think it's because, almost innately or subconsciously, there's an understanding that, that there's, there, there can be that feeling there through that experience. There can be that form of connection and oneness. What does stillness mean to you? I don't have a, a, any, any type of, you know, I'd say particularly unique definition around it. For me, what I think is really important about being still is that it's an opportunity to just be ourselves, mm. to not distract ourselves, which is something I think we do so regularly, and to allow our true nature to emerge. And if we're able in the practice of stillness to really just allow ourselves to be who we are in this moment, dropping these ideas of that we're behind or that we're not enough or whatever the things that we, we so you know commonly experience, in stillness, if we're able to just say, this is who I am, I love myself for where I'm at in my life, I love myself for who I am, and can just be with that, can just be with us in that moment, in that stillness, that we're able to really connect with that which makes us human, you know, which is, which is 
the essence of acceptance and love. And this is a really important practice in an age where there's so much noise and so much movement that keeps us oftentimes from slowing down or having the experience of stillness to go to that place. So for me, this is a really important practice. It's not just about silence. What's the most spiritual experience that you've ever had? It's interesting because when you ask the question, what I what comes to mind most are the are the greatest challenges I've had with anxiety and with panic attacks. When you ask what the most spiritual experience is, first I think about the first panic attack I had, uh, which was so incredibly uncomfortable and scary. But I think of it as a spiritual experience because it was it was that moment yeah. that set me off into this journey to do this work. It's what led me to find meditation. It's what led me to, you know, organize the big quiet and give myself to this work. And the other, the other, the, the other moment I think of is when I decided to go, uh, uh, when I decided to go off of uh, an SSRI medication, um, after having been on it for several years, it's an antidepressant medication. Uh, and the withdrawal process can be really challenging for some people going off those medications. And I went through this, really, really challenging period in my life. Um, And it just was sort of, everything was felt like it was becoming uprooted. Uh, And it was a really tough time for me. And I also feel like I just learned so much through the process of experiencing that discomfort. I feel like it was a really important spiritual experience because it uh, in many ways uh, reminded me of what so many people experience and I think it also strengthened me and allowed me to be more of the person that I am today. So I, I, I think challenging moments are oftentimes mm. the most spiritual moments. At least for me, that's been the case. Yes. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? You know, my dad, my dad would always, he's got this really beautiful ability no matter how fucked up things are or how scary things are, how much stress is occurring, he's got this ability to hold the challenge while also smiling. And um, I genuinely believe this is a practice for everyone, regardless of life circumstance. It's to be able to, you know, find some goodness, find some ability to smile in the face of adversity when you're able to, right? I think forcing a smile never makes sense. Mm. But to be able to see some of the good or to be able to have a laugh in life's most challenging situations um, is really important. And the way that I've been able to apply that advice to my life recently was, you know, holding so much of the heaviness in the world, especially in the U.S., coming out of this this summer um, with the movement around social injustice, the pandemic, politics and the election, so much heaviness in this country. And there was this, I felt like allowing myself to experience any form of joy was wrong. Mm. And that because of my, my privilege, that it wasn't right for me to be able to, I don't know, apply any of that privilege to allowing myself to have different experience, um, to allow myself to experience joy, to have fun in any capacity was wrong. And I noticed myself feeling elements of shame or guilt that would come up when I would have 
moments of joy in my life in 2020 um, because so many people weren't. And I realized that that was a mindset that doesn't work for me. And, and what I've been able to practice definitely the past several months, and I continue to practice as we lead up to the election, is giving myself permission to feel joy, giving myself permission to have fun, even while moving through my own darkness or collectively moving through darkness. Because what I've realized is I think what's so, I, what I've realized is so powerful about my dad's advice is that when we are able to, to find ways to smile in the face of challenge, when we are able to give ourselves permission to find that joy or experience that fun while also navigating darkness, it provides us with energy to work through the darkness. It provides us with energy to problem solve for how to really help the world. That's been my experience. And it's been really important for me, especially this year. What's your greatest hope for society today? I'd say in this moment, it's for, it's for people to relearn how to listen to each other. Yeah. It's to relearn how to have conversation where we can learn from each other, even if we don't agree with each other. I feel like the, the art of, of conversation mm. uh, or, you know, we talk about the debates <clears throat> here in the U.S., the political debates, but they're not really debates. They're, they're, they're more people kind of yelling their opinions at each other and not listening to each other. And that's just sort of the way that the system has supported it. Um, I think this is, this is a huge, this is a tremendous loss for us as a people. My hope is that we'll be able to get back to a place where we can learn from each other and listen to each other, even if we don't agree with each other. I think this is such an important way to problem solve. I think it's a really meaningful way to, to create solutions for problems. Mm. And I think a lot of innovation can come from that practice of empathy and listening and learning, even if we don't agree with each other. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness to me is, uh, is I would say that if we are able to experience joy as something that comes from us, as opposed to something that we get from other things, so, and an, an innate joy that we can feel just for being ourselves, just for being alive on this earth, which we 100% all have access to, because my belief is that life is sacred. Mm. And that if we choose to really appreciate and love and see the beauty in every moment, there's so much goodness. There's so much to live for. There's so much joy to have. When we're able to understand and connect with this concept of, there is joy within each of us, regardless of what's happening outside of us, regardless of what's happening externally. This is greatness, in my opinion. Because if we can connect with that innate joy, then we can share it with whatever we give ourselves to. If we feel joy within, we can share it with our partners. We can share it with our work. We can share it with our friends and spread it. And I think a really fulfilling life, a life of greatness, comes from this place of understanding that we are love and that there is so much goodness within each of us that we have access to if we choose to see it. Jesse Israel, thank you for all the beautiful work you do. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's great to chat with you. I appreciate you having me on the show and learning a little bit about your own practice. It's been a real treat. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. 
If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.